So we love that story and that testimony and, and the power of story to begin to, uh, to challenge us today as we look at our scripture, as we look at, I think the question that becomes, what does God, what does God expect of us? What, what is God expect of us in the way that we bless others and, and the way that we use the things and the resources that he's entrusted to us? And so to start that, let's turn in our scripture this morning to, to Luke chapter 12. I'm uh, going to read verses 13 through 21, Cassie. So I'm going to stop at verse 21 this morning, cut it a little shorter. But uh, this is the parable of the rich fool. So brothers and sisters, hear these words. Someone in the crowd said to him, being Jesus, said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Brothers and sisters, I pray God's blessing here on the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious God, that we would be challenged, inspired, that we would be changed by the power of your word, most importantly, the power of your Holy Spirit at work within us, that we truly will be rich toward you and faithful in the things that Christ has called us to. We pray in his holy name. Amen. So let's take a brief survey here. This is pastor learning more about the congregation moment. How many of you have garages at your house? How many of you have a garage? And I ask because not everybody does. Some people have carports. Some people just park in a driveway. But let me go. Let me see your hands. Hands back up if you have a garage. All right. How many of you can actually park your car in your garage? I want to see. All right. Okay. How many of you, those are two-car garages. All right. Let's see. Two-car garages. How many of you can park both your cars in your garage? There we go. So, all right. See, those of you that still have your hands up, you are the organizers. I know you are the organizers, and you're the people I both respect and loathe at the same time, um, because I wish I was more like you. That's, that's why. Um, it, it just, it, it fascinates me that, and I don't know if, if this is different than it was generations ago or not. I, I obviously can't speak to that. But, but that our garages, for many of us, um, have become additional storage closets. You know, we, now, now, full disclosure, the parsonage where Tony and I and the kids live, we have a two-car garage that gets one car in. So we, we kind of half and half. We're, we're half organized, half not. And, um, but, but for many, some of you get both your cars. Some of you are incredibly organized, incredibly efficient in your space and then some of you you can't get another thing in your garage if you wanted to you know it's it's become the place that we store um, our stuff 
I remember, some of you remember, George Carlin did a bit years ago about this stuff. You know, we just accumulate. And, and what's happened is now that there are businesses that we, that we fund that will store our stuff. There's a storage unit right over here that you can pay when you need more space or, or units in the back. We just, we tend to accumulate things. And, and I thought about that. I was challenged by that as Bert was sharing a story. And I was thinking, yeah, I walk in my closet and I have shoes in that closet that I haven't worn in years. I keep sneakers forever. I don't know why, but I do. I keep thinking one of these days I'm going to be, I'm going to need this old ratty pair of sneakers. Um, and I do take that for granted. And as you said, you know, think about your shoes. I, I don't because, you know, we take that for granted. And we begin to accumulate things. We do it as a church, too. With our, one of our biggest challenges around here is finding a place to store the things that we use. We try to be efficient with it, but, but of trying to find places to keep things that are valuable or useful or that we think we're going to need. And, and that becomes kind of human nature. We, we become, and it can become very dangerous for us. When we begin to accumulate. It's interesting. Television can become a reflection of society sometimes, a scary reflection sometimes. But, uh, you know, I was, I was just laughing to myself. You know, we have reality TV shows like Storage Wars. I don't know if you've seen this, where people bid money to buy, to buy junk. Yeah, to buy storage units, hoping that they'll find a treasure in there. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, we have reality shows like Hoarders, with people who can't give away anything, and they just accumulate and accumulate. And, and I'm not making light of that. That can be... Um, an illness that can be a real uh, struggle, and, and probably there's a couple people in here that um, struggle with that. And please don't hear me condemning you. Um, but it, it does. We, we begin to, to gather stuff, and, and it becomes a, a barometer sometimes of, of our success, of our sense of value, of our sense of worth. Who knows what it, what it may be? We do it, and we do it electronically too. Now, in the day of computers, there's business all over the place that will store our stuff in the cloud, that will keep our files. I have files going back. I don't even know why I kept them. I, don't, I open them sometimes. I don't even know what they are, and I wrote it. Uh, you know, that kind of stuff. But, but the point is, we begin to accumulate. And here's where it becomes very dangerous for us, is when we begin to equate and, and think of our lives and the value of our lives in terms of the things that we have or the things that we begin to accumulate. In this very simple story that Jesus tells, that is the condemnation that he speaks into the life of this rich fool, into the lives of any of us that would begin to equate material possessions with the value and the worth of the life that we lead. Because as he says at the very, very beginning, he says, don't equate the worth of your life with your possessions. Don't, don't begin because they're, they're not the same. They're not synonymous. And he goes on to tell this story of this rich fool. And, and Jesus' language is very pointed, and that should get our attention. But, but, but the structure's very easy to follow. This guy has a bumper crop. He has a great year. He has a, a, a wonderful harvest, and life is good. Now, now, you want to equate this? Um, the bonus comes in. Uh, the, the, the stocks pay off. There's a million ways we could think of this in, a, in our own, within the structure of our own society, but Jesus lived in an agricultural society. So this made a lot of sense to his listeners. This guy, I mean, he basically hits it on easy street. And so he thinks to himself, what do I do with this? And his response, his answer 
is I'm going to store it up. I'm going to store I'm going to build bigger barns because the barns that he has aren't sufficient. I'm going to store it up and I'm going to coast the rest of my life. I'm going to, as, as the scripture says, eat, drink, and be merry. That sounds good, doesn't it? I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. And on account of that attitude, on account of that response, on account of that mindset, Jesus speaks the judgment through the voice of God. He says that God speaks that very night and he says, you fool, this very night, your life will be demanded of you. And then there's this interesting phrase, then who's going to get your possessions? You know what that is? That is, you can't take it with you. You can't, you know, no, the cliche, you've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul, okay? You know that kind of a thing. Actually, I think there was a picture on Facebook of a hearse pulling a U-Haul. But that doesn't mean anything. You don't take that with you. And that's what he says. He says, woe to you, judgment upon you, when you are blessed and you're not rich toward God. And so you read that, and the story makes a lot of sense. And we think, gosh, what a foolish man. What a selfish man. But if we start to turn that gaze toward ourselves, we have to ask ourselves, what's that point that we cross that line? Where is that place? What is the criticism that Jesus has for him? Because in understanding that, we begin to understand what Jesus says to us. And, and there's, a, there's a tendency, and maybe the, the, the easy answer is to say, well, well, he was criticized because of that, that phrase, eat, drink, and be merry. But I, I don't think that alone is the problem. That's part of the problem. But Jesus enjoyed the fellowship of others. He enjoyed a good meal. He enjoyed, he enjoyed life. And I don't think Jesus in and of itself is criticizing that alone. But the problem, I believe, is that there's an absence of a word in that man's thinking. And that word is and. A-N-D. There's no and. As if I will enjoy the fruits of my labor and I will do something else. And I will bless others in some way. Nowhere in the man's thinking, nowhere in his mindset do we get any reflection that he has any concern of what God wants him to do with his blessings. There's no conversation with family and friends about other things he could do. It becomes completely and entirely self-serving. His attention is on himself and what he can gain and what he can do and what he can enjoy. And it is the selfishness, it is the self-centered nature of this rich fool that earns him the moniker fool because nowhere does his gaze turn outward nowhere does his thinking become focused on anything other than himself and that's where god begins to step in and hold him accountable what does jesus say you cannot love both god and money you cannot serve both god and money because you will serve one and hate the other. You will, you will honor one and you will despise the other, but you can't do them both. He says it's easier for a rich man to, or it's hard, yeah, easier for, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. In Timothy, Paul writes in Timothy, for the love of money is the what? Root of all kinds of evil. It is the root, over and over. Jesus says more about money than he says about anything. Why, is money bad? No. Is it wrong to enjoy some of the fruits of your labor? I'd be a hypocrite to say that. But it is dangerous because money very easily becomes our master. 
Or I had one person say who was very wealthy once, I read a story about his life, who was very generous, and he said, was asked how he could be so generous, and he said very, very early in his life he learned that money either is an idol or a tool. And the problem with the rich fool is that money becomes his idol. The danger for us is that money becomes our idol and it doesn't become a tool. And so the question becomes, how do we begin to self-analyze? How do we begin to ask ourselves, have we fallen into that place? What would Jesus speak into our lives? I want to ask you to do something for me. I want you, if you have your wallet or your purse, I want you to grab it. If you have a dollar or a $5 bill or 10 whatever, grab a, a bill if you have it. And a lot of people don't carry bills anymore. We, we use credit cards and debit cards. But if you do, grab one. I should have had you do this before I started preaching. All right. As you get that or you have it, you can take a good look at it. You've seen them a million times. You probably don't pay any attention. I'm really not here to talk about any of the symbolism or wording or anything specifically on the dollar bill, but I want you to think about this with a bill or in your hand. A couple years ago, New York University did a, a scientific study of money, um, not just with microscopes, but with so, some high-end equipment. And they looked at a number of dollar bills. And they found, on average, that on any given bill, there were 3,000 variants of bacteria on every dollar bill. <laughs> ah, I didn't see it going that way, did you? There were, on any given bill, over 1.2 million segments of DNA. Money is dirty. Money is dirty. I mean, this is just a Petri dish that you carry around in your wallet and your purse. In fact, I'm going to do a favor for you. I've got a bag here. And if you want to you get rid of that nasty stuff, just kidding. Just kidding. The idea, though, is that money is dirty. Why? Well, you know why. Because a lot of hands are on it. Because a lot of it passed from person to person, place to place, wallet person. I mean, money has quite a, a path, if you will. Here's what I believe is the reason that the rich, young, or I'm sorry, the rich fool was held so accountable. He wanted his money to be clean. He wanted his money to be clean. And what I mean by that is he wanted to be the only one whose hands were on it. He wanted to be the only one to touch it, to hold it, to use it, to benefit from it. He wanted clean money. You know what, friends? Jesus wants dirty money. He wants us with our resources in our lives to get dirty I want you to think about the very nature of who Jesus was. Philippians says, Paul writes, that though he was in the form of God, he did not equate equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, humbled himself, taking on the form of a slave. And from the moment Jesus stepped into human history, from the moment God became incarnate among us, he was willing to get dirty. He was born in a manger, laid in a manger, born in a barn among cattle and dirt and hay. His best friends were fishermen. You ever been around fishermen? He touched lepers. He handled corpses that he would breathe new life into. The lame, the crippled, the woman 
with hemorrhaging, those who were just determined to be dirty or unclean or outside of society, he rubbed elbows, rubbed shoulders, he would touch, he would be near, he got dirty. And on the night before he was crucified, in a meal that he would share with his friends, he got down in the dirt and he washed their feet. Over and over, Jesus' life was one, a willingness to get dirty, to get into the grime and the, the, the real of life. And if we are called to follow Jesus, the pattern of our life should reflect that. The problem is we're just too sterile. We live in a society, I mean, we carry hand sanitizers around and, and wipes. I know I'm, I'm stepping on toes right now, and I, I don't mean that, but there's a danger in that because sometimes we can be so clean that we don't build an immunity up to the germs. You know, there, there can, there's value in the fact that a lot of us drank out of hoses as kids and, and ate dirt. You know, there's some good things in that. We, we want to be sterile. We want to be clean. I, I get that. I'm, I'm pushing the example a little bit, but... But Jesus calls us to get dirty. And that's our resources. That's, that's what God entrusts us with. Our willingness to, to take the things that we have, that we've been blessed with, and not just have our hands on it, but to allow other people to get their hands on it. To give it away in such a way that a little girl can get a pair of shoes who lives in Bosnia. Or that a, a neighbor can have food on the table. Or, or somebody in need. Or the church can be about the ministry that we're called to be about because that is possible because of what you give what we give together and there is a danger when we want our money clean because ours are the only hands on it we know it's not literally going to be clean but you get the idea you know criminals will take money and they will launder it so launder your money to to erase the trail so it can't be traced because money tells a story. Your money tells a story. My money tells a story. I've, I've, you've heard it said before probably that one of the most theologically deep documents we write is our checkbook because it tells a lot about what we value. But our money tells a story. What kind of story does it tell? What does your resources, what do my resources tell? And whose hands are on it? This is not a criticism of using your resources to bless those closest to you. But this is to challenge you. If that's the only people being blessed by it, then what would Jesus say to your life? What would he speak into mine? Because he is very, very pointed with a rich fool who hoards it for himself. Don't fall into the trap of wanting to be too clean. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that is yours because it never has been, it never will be. You will not take it with you. It's God's. He has entrusted it to us. Whose hands are on it? If your money could tell a story, would that story be filled with a lot of sanitized, sterile fingerprints? Or would it be a little dirty? What kind of story would it tell? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, that we would be challenged by your word to us. And if need be convicted, we have been entrusted with, with resources, with blessings, with abundance in many ways. Lord, help us not to be selfish. Help us not to see that as only ours, only for us, only to our benefit, but help us to be willing to give, to share, to love through the things that you have 
given to us. Help us be willing in our lives and on our resources to get a little bit dirty. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.